Brett Heinemann. Good morning, Dr. Heinemann, and thank you for doing today's podcast. It is my pleasure. So it's my understanding uh, that uh, today's topic is intubation of the patient with an unstable cervical spine. I would like to introduce you to our audience, which are basically residents and fellows. Uh, Dr. Hindman is professor of anesthesia at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. He's a neuroanesthesiologist and has been doing that for a very, very long time. Uh, Dr. Hindman's uh, expertise for today's uh, podcast is in the cervical spine and how it moves in um, stable situations and in unstable situations, fracture or the disease. And Dr. Heinemann has published several papers uh, on this topic, and uh, we've been uh, reading his work and following his work for a very long time, very high-quality work. Uh, Dr. Heinemann, thank you for being with us today, and I would like to uh, go straight uh, into the topic and uh, start with our, our first question is, how do the cervical spine vertebra move during direct laryngoscopy in someone with a normal cervical spine? Sure. Studies uh, looking at cervical spine motion uh, during intubation show that approximately uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of the motion that occurs is extension between occiput to C2. So that's, those are really the segments that show the most motion. Below C2, the segments C2 through C5, called the subaxial segments, those segments often uh, move very little, only two to three degrees of extension um, during a stable intubation uh, with a conventional Macintosh laryngoscope. Uh, is there a difference in, that, in those numbers? Is there a difference in extension and motion of the cervical spine, whether one uses the Macintosh blade versus uh, the Miller blade? Yes, there there is a very small difference. Um, uh, work we've done shows that the difference uh, between the Mac and the, and the Miller is principally between occiput and C1, the mo the most uh, cephalad uh, segment. Um, the difference is small. There's about 20% less extension at occiput to C1 with the Miller blade than with the Mac blade. So that's about three degrees, a difference between 12 degrees and nine degrees. Overall, uh, the entire cervical spine between occiput and C5, there is about 15% less motion, uh, about five degrees less uh, with the Miller blade. Again, the difference is, is, is quantitatively quite small. Okay. Uh, does this mean, do, would you recommend then uh, it's preferable to use the Miller blade in a, someone who has some question of instability in the cervical spine? Well, I would say that if you if a person is facile with the Miller blade, is something that you have a lot of experience with, you're comfortable with it, and and that uh, you choose to use direct laryngoscopy in a patient with an unstable spine, there there is every indication that this should be as good, if not better, uh, than a Macintosh. There is no disadvantage. Uh, I would say, however, that if the Miller blade is not something that you have a lot of experience or comfort with, 
then I would say stick with what you know. Uh, if you're using direct laryngoscopy, stick with what you know. Okay, thank you. So my next question are, is, are the cervical vertebras motion different during video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy again in a patient with a normal intact cervical spine? Uh, the answer to that is a qualified yes. Uh, but the reason I'm qualifying that is, is that not all video laryngoscopes uh, are the same. Uh, and not all of them have been carefully studied. Uh, there have been at least three video laryngoscopes that have been studied fairly carefully in terms of their motion characteristics in a stable spine. The first, probably the uh, first studied and most, best well-known is the GlideScope. And overall, uh, I would say the differences between a conventional Macintosh and a GlideScope in terms of cervical spine motion are, are next to zero. Uh, some studies show no difference, some show very small differences, but all things considered, I think we have to say the GlideScope is more like the Macintosh than it is different. A different video laryngoscope that is not widely used in the United States but is used more widely in Europe and Japan is called the Airway Scope. And that one does show approximately 40% less motion um, compared with the Macintosh in virtually all cervical segments. Um, in the United States, uh, sort of the equivalent laryngoscope to the uh, Airway Scope is the AirTrack. It is not widely used, uh, but it does seem to result in about 30% less motion than the Macintosh. But in not all segments, uh, it appear the lesser motion with the air track is in the in the subaxial segments, with not so much motion in, uh, difference in the upper cervical segments. There are, of course, other video laryngoscopes uh, out there, and not all of them have been carefully studied with regards to segmental motion. So the notion that when a resident uh, or a CRNA comes and tells me, oh, the patient's is, uh, C-spine is not quite stable, so I'm going to use uh, a video laryngoscope uh, such as the GlideScope, is, is, this is not quite uh, correct. So you well, move the cervical, the unstable cervical spine as much with the video laryngoscope as like, or with the... I mean, as well, if compared to a direct laryngoscopy with a Macintosh blade, I guess. Well, here's here's where we get into uh, a challenge uh, with the literature, and and that is, first of all, what we can say is that video laryngoscopes do not always result in different motion characteristics than a conventional laryngoscope with a stable spine, but that does not necessarily translate into the patient with the unstable cervical spine. We make inferences that what we see in a patient with a stable spine will, will be the same case with a patient with an unstable spine, but we really do not know that well. All right, We don't know that well. Uh, and, and so even though a given laryngoscope might result in less motion in a stable spine, we can't absolutely say that it will result in less motion at an unstable segment in a in a patient. So we have to be careful about the drawing inferences. But I will say this: um, in 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 no case does a video laryngoscope result in more motion uh, than a standard Macintosh blade. In no instance does it result in more motion in a stable spine. It always results in equal or lesser motion. 
almost always a video laryngoscope will give you a better glottic view than a conventional line of sight laryngoscope, particularly if you're using manual inline stabilization. So I would say is if, if a videoscope is likely to result in a better view, why not use it? You have there is no disadvantage. Okay. So now let's consider a pa patients with a cervical spine fracture. Mm -hmm. What happens to the cervical spine during direct laryngoscopy if the anesthesiologist applied manual inline stabilization? Well, this, of course, manual inline stabilization is currently the standard of care when a patient is, uh, needs to undergo a direct laryngoscopy uh, when they have known or suspected cervical spine instability. The evidence base that manual inline stabilization actually decreases uh, motion of an unstable segment is very weak. In fact, the great majority of the literature says that it either makes no difference in the motion of the unstable segment or in a few instances might actually result in an increase uh, in the motion of the unstable segment. You say, how is that possible? The reason why is, is that manual inline stabilization has been shown very clearly to impair glottic visualization. You just, because you extend the spine less, you see the glottis less well. And what anesthesiologists do is when they can't see the glottis, they lift harder and apply greater amounts of force uh, with the laryngoscope. And <clears throat> as a consequence, it is possible, some experiments have shown, uh, actually greater motion uh, at the unstable segment, probably be because of the increased force. So I'd say is when you use manual inline stabilization, it is the standard of care, but uh, be thoughtful and mindful that it is, you're likely to have impaired glottic visualization. And in the setting of an unstable spine, applying more force rather than less force doesn't seem like a great idea. Uh, and so as a result, I, I, I virtually always now, when I intubate a patient using manual inline stabilization, I will use a video laryngoscope. Not necessarily that it's going to result uh, in uh, less force application or less motion, but I'm for sure to get a better glottic view. And uh, that I know for sure. And, and hence, that is likely to help me, not hurt me. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Hyman. Now, I think we touched on that in an uh, earlier question. Uh, is there a a video laryngoscopy gadget that results in less relative motion of the cervical vertebrae in patients with unstable cervical spines? So the straight-up answer to your question is we have no idea. Okay, There is no human data uh, in patients with unstable spines uh, to tell us that. The only data that we have, and it's extremely limited data, comes from cadaver studies. And one has to look at the cadaver studies very uh, skeptically uh, because uh, what we're beginning to understand very well is cadavers are not great models. Cadavers are not great models of what happens uh, to the cervical spine during intubation. Uh, and there are lots of reasons for it. Uh, but the, the answer, one of the, re one of the major reasons for it is, is that dead tissue, cadaver tissue, uh, does not respond to forces in the same way that living tissue does. And as a consequence, the more times you intubate a cadaver, the greater the change becomes in their airway and their dynamics. 
So this is a long story to say is we have to be very cautious about extrapolating cadaver data to what we see in living humans. So that's that's my first preamble. Now, ha- having said that, uh, there, there have been a very few studies that have compared various intubating devices in cadaver models with unstable spines. And uh, <clears throat> all, all things considered, uh, it appears that usually, generally, and modestly, uh, the air track videolaryngoscope results in l- less motion than the Macintosh. A Bullard laryngoscope, uh, perhaps also uh, slightly less motion. A light wand uh, appears to pretty consistently result in less motion. Now, having said that, the, a light wand is not a video laryngoscope. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you would expect that since a light wand really won't apply much force, uh, you're not going to see much motion. Um, the other thing I would say is, is we, come, we come with an assumption that less motion is inherently safer. But the simple truth is when, when you look carefully at the amount of motion that occurs at unstable segments during intubation, very uncommonly is that motion actually exceed normal values. So if, if, if the motion that you get doesn't exceed normal values, getting less motion isn't necessarily safer. So yes, less motion sounds good, but we can't necessarily extrapolate that it is inherently safer. So I would say is that if one is not familiar with a given video laryngoscope, I wouldn't use it because you're not likely to use it well. Use what you know well in a patient with an unstable spine, and, and you're probably best off in that circumstance. Okay. Uh, how about fiber optic uh, intubation, whether oral or nasal? What is its value in a patient with an unstable cervical spine? Well, fiber optic intubation, I, I would say, is still preferred uh, by many in patients uh, with unstable spines. Um, and the concept is that with a fiberscope, you apply virtually no force uh, to the airway soft tissues or the spine, and in principle, you should have the least amount of motion that could possibly occur. And you're no worse off for not moving the spine. So we the the other advantage of the technique, uh, potential advantage, is that after the breathing tube is in, you can uh, confirm that the patient is neurologically intact. And I think there are advantages to that, both medically as well as uh, uh, medical legally. So I would say is if you're in a circumstance that you can use a wake fiber optic in a patient with known or suspected cervical spine disease, there why not? Okay. However, we we know that there are many circumstances in which a patient may not be a great candidate for an awake fiber optic. So the the technique will not solve every problem in every patient every time. Okay. Now, does the level of the C-spine fracture dictate the use or non-use of awake fiber optic intubation? I mean, the the typical uh, situation says what? When a patient has a C-spine fracture at C5, C6, do, is it worth going through all the preparation? Uh, if nothing, if everything else is okay, I mean, and do fiber optic intubation, why not do uh, just a regular old direct laryngoscopy if the C-spine fracture is at 
C5, C6, or C6, C7. Sure. Well, that that is a spectacularly that's a great great question, and the 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 answer to that takes us right to the limit of our existing knowledge, and that takes us to our limit of existing knowledge and perhaps beyond uh, our limit of existing knowledge, because right now we don't really have uh, knowledge about what unstable how unstable segments behave. Uh, during intubation, at, at each level of the cervical spine, and with what kind of injury? Not all cervical spine injuries are the same. We refer to the spine as stable or unstable, but the simple truth is uh, that's an oversimplification. There's a great range of types of injuries which result in a great range of variable levels of instability. So not all forms of cervical spine injury are the same. So a, you know, um, for example, a, a C, there, you could say, oh, well, the patient has a C2 fracture, but a C2 fracture could be a type 2 odontoid fracture, which would be very, very different than a C2 uh, body fracture like a hangman's fracture. The dynamics of what's going to happen with intubation will be very different. Likewise, in the subaxial spine, um, if you have a facet dislocation, that is like more likely to be a high-risk injury in terms of subluxation than if the facets are in place. So this is a long professorial answer to say is we do not know. So yes, we know that subaxial segments tend to move very little in the stable spine, but I don't think with our current knowledge we can say that if you have a given type of injury in the subaxial spine that's that's unstable, that 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 is a non-worry with fiber optic intubation. So, I I since I am still ignorant, uh, if I have a patient with a subaxial injury and it looks quite significant, and particularly if the facets are are dislocated, I'll still use a fiber optic intubation. I am not convinced yet that video laryngoscope is uh, in, inherently or necessarily safe in all subaxial injuries. Oh, thank you. Uh, would you like to add any other comments uh, on this topic, Dr. Heinemann? Um, well, the only thing I would say is, is all things considered, there is no evidence that you're any worse off ever with a video laryngoscope than you are with a conventional laryngoscope. So I would say is if you have a patient with known or suspected cervical spine disease or instability and you want to give yourself the best conditions, I'd say use a video laryngoscope. You're never going to be worse off in terms of motion and you're never going to be worse off in terms of glottic visualization. So so I would say is there's every reason to use a video laryngoscope. Uh, and so I would encourage people to gain facility with at least one or more forms of video laryngoscopy. You're never going to be worse off. Well, uh, Dr. Heinemann, thank you so much for doing this educational, wonderful pod podcast uh, with us for uh, the residents and fellows audio corner for on the website of the Society of Neurosurgical Anesthesia and Critical Care, or now as it's called, Society of Neurosciences in Anesthesia and Critical Care. The topic today was intubation of the patient with an unstable cervical spine. This is your host, Mason McTavie, 
from the University of Vermont. And thank you to all. Thank you, Dr. Hyman. It's been my privilege. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.